0: Hi there, my name is Graham Virtue, I'm a journalist based here in Glasgow and it's my job to welcome you to this uh, BAFTA Scotland event in conversation in association with the Glasgow Film Festival 2017. I have with me Colm McCarthy, he's from Edinburgh, so coming to Glasgow, philosophically that's actually quite a far way to come, so we're very pleased to have him here. Uh, He's the man who killed Rupert Henry Jones in spooks, Um, he helped launch (laughs) Endeavour, the Morse prequel. Um, He's also worked on some of the most high profile drama hits in the world today. I'm thinking of things like Sherlock, Doctor Who and Peaky Blinders. Last year he also directed a movie called The Girl with All the Gifts, which was an excellent post-apocalyptic movie set in the UK. Uh, And we're very pleased to have him here today. Um, We have some clips from some of the projects I've just mentioned that we're going to get a director's commentary on. But if I could just ask you to make sure you've got your phones switched off, that would be great. Uh, and also I was hoping we could start with a show of hands I mean you're all industry delegates here so it's obviously you have some connection with, with TV or film but is there anyone here who has a particular interest in directing or getting into directing or is an actual director if you could raise your hand
1: uh oh <laughs> Mike get found out here that's quite a few
0: so um, we only have an hour for this session but we'll make sure we have 20 minutes at the end so you guys can ask some questions whether it's about why you killed Rupert Penry-Jones or it was or in or... the script <laughs> Alright, well it feels like uh, in the film and TV industry everyone has an almost unique story about how they broke in but um, I would say Call Mirrors is a little bit more unusual than most um, maybe you could tell us how you found your way into the industry
1: So I would say that as a kid I wanted to be a director all my life I always wanted to be a director but when I was five I got taken to see Star Wars uh, it's theatrical, kind of first theatrical release which ages me but it also says that I grew up watching Raiders of the Lost Ark, E.T., Close Encounters. They were the films that I grew up with, and I was in love with the cinema, television, screen storytelling from a very early age and had this idea that directors were the people who got to weave the dreamscapes that were my escapism, and that was the thing that really was very attractive to me. From a very young age, when I was 10, I had a book of great directors, and the kind of uh, the opening morning, afternoon, evening uh, was a picture of a set from uh, Spartacus with Kubrick on the set. And there was like a silk, and I'd written Colin McCarthy, director, like a little precocious <laughs> 10 year old, uh, in the front of it. So I knew that I wanted to be a director, but then when I was a teenager, life was a bit shit and stuff, and I forgot about it. It didn't seem like somebody something that somebody who was kind of growing up fairly broke in Scotland could go and do with their life. It just seemed like something that had been like wanting to be an astronaut. It was like in that category of things. And then when I was in my late 20s, I was working in a cafe in Dublin where I'd moved to and I was chatting to a friend of mine. I kind of was going, I want to get my life together and do something with my life because I I dropped out of school when I was like 13, 14 and I hadn't really done anything other than kind of be in punk bands and fry bacon. So he said, what did you want to do when you were a kid? And I said, well, I always wanted to be a film director. And he went, I work in the film business. And I was like, you're a truck driver. And he was like, yeah, I drive a prop truck. So uh, he was like, if you want to be a director, you have to be an assistant director first. And I went, that sounds like probably that's probably true. And it's like, okay. Okay. So he brought me down to... He was working as the props truck driver on a film called The General that John Boorman was directing. And he brought me down there, introduced me to some of the ADs down on the film set, and they told me about the union. Ireland was very unionised at the time. So I spent about a year trying to get into the union and eventually got enough signatures and they had enough branch meetings. So I was accepted as a trainee assistant director into the union. And I went to my first kind of branch meeting of the union And at the end of it, I was like, what are they talking about? And I still want to do this. This is brilliant. I have no idea what's going on. And at the end of the meeting, I was chatting to some other guys who were all a little bit younger than me. They were all like 23, 24. They all had degrees in film. They were all white blokes as well. But anyway, and uh, I was like, "Uh, how do you get started in the business? And they were like, well, we're all looking for jobs. But, you know, do you have a degree? And I'm like, no. And uh, this guy came up to me and said, what height are you? And uh, I was like five eleven and a half, and a half. he was like, I, I've got an opening for a stand-in and you're like roughly the right proportions starting on Monday. Can you start work on Monday for two weeks' work? It's only two weeks because I've got somebody who's better than you starting then. <laughs> and I didn't know why yet, but I was like, yes, I definitely can. And he walked away and I turned to the guy next to me and I was like, what's a stand-in? And uh, he explained to me that it's the person that stands on set Well. Well, the lighting is taking place when the actors back in the trailer doing cocaine or whatever. And um, so, I, uh, so I was like, great, I'll be a stand-in then for two weeks. And I turned up and the, the director of photography the first morning was like, looked at me and was like, who is this guy? And I realized that I was a stand-in for a black actor, which is like, how reflective you are is quite important to the job of stand-in. So I ended up getting kind of sequestered into the assistant directing department. And I became an AD. And that was a thing called Mystic Knights of and Oak, which was uh, like Power Rangers, made by the people who make Power Rangers. Only it was like the Celtic Legends version of Power Rangers. So it was guys in big foam heads doing kung fu, each other in an Irish accent. And so that's kind of, that was my first job. And I worked on that for nine months. And I did some favour... I managed to kind of stay on it. And I was just incredibly keen. And like I quite often talk to people who want to get into the business or want to direct, and they're like... What tips do you have? And I was like, make a lot of tea. That's like, that's basically, I think, how I got to stay on the job for as long as I did, was I just made cups of tea for people, and I took bits of paper. I didn't know anything. They said, on the first day, they said, here's a radio. We're going to rap early. Go and find Charlene and get the call sheets. And I was like, I don't know what any of those words mean. And I was like, Charlene? On the radio, and this woman was like, go for Charlene. And I was like, I'm going for Charlene. Where is she? And that's what didn't want wasn't what she meant. She I mean, it is surely anyway. So it was bad. It was bad. But at the end of it, like I managed to kind of fumble my way through, and I uh, fell in love with being on set and what was happening there. And I was very it was very easy for me to be super keen about doing it. And that was kind of the main thing that I that I did was just be really enthusiastic and not late for like nine months. And then at the end of that. I'd kind of done a, a couple of favours for the line producer and he let me borrow the second unit equipment and I went and shot my first short film at the end of that nine months and immediately, four years later, I became a director. So that was kind of, that's like a version of how I got into the business. Sure, that's a
0: bit of a, a, a fast cut. We're
1: probably cut. about halfway through now, aren't we?
0: <laughs> so, I mean, I mean, that sounds like a, a, an amazing start, but obviously you, you had to bring the enthusiasm with you. And uh, I mean, did you find the people you worked with then were, were, were supportive or were they all just very busy and very involved in what they were doing?
1: What I found was that, like, um, people are very willing to be helpful in the business. I think that a lot of the time people look for help in the wrong ways. What people don't want to do usually is read scripts. Like, if you were like, will you read my script? No, <laughs> that's like a no, a no. Because <laughs> uh, for me to read a feature script takes three hours in my life. You know, for me to have a cup of coffee with someone takes an hour. So I'd actually rather meet somebody who's getting into the business to have a cup of coffee with them than read a script that they send to me. Which is like, if that's a piece of advice for people getting going. Um, In terms of like how helpful people were, they'll work for free if people feel like if you've worked with people and they've seen that you're keen and that you're like know what you're doing and that you know, and that you've got an idea and you're making something happen. People love that energy. Everybody in the film business basically ran away to join the circus you know, and then find themselves hanging out with all the kids from behind the P.E. block smoking fags, <laughs> do you know, on a film set somewhere, like, you know, in the rain, and that's sort of what the thing is. So mm-hmm. I find people are very helpful. I like to be helpful when people are... As long as they don't ask me to read scripts. <laughs> so if you do have a script, please please don't, don't approach... Don't send it to me. Yeah, <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> that'd be
0: great. <laughs> Yeah. So in terms of, of getting your foot in the door of directing TV episodes, I mean, was there a, a standard career path
1: or were you really well, just... Well, having... like I say, it was four years. Really, there was four years between I made that short film and then we kind of got a demo commercial to make for a company that were like the produced... The guy who produced it, which meant that like he paid for the catering. That was like... Because that's like you have to feed people and if you're going to borrow gear off people, you have to insure it. And nowadays... You don't really have to insure gear because you're probably going to like shoot it on your iPhone or something anyway, but like, you probably still need to feed people. That's just like being a good person. But yeah, so the producer, he got us this demo commercial to do, and then we wound up getting the commercial off the back of that, and I had to leave the assistant directing department of the union to become a director in the union in order to direct the commercials because it was very unionised in Ireland. And then I couldn't work as an AD anymore. So it was only like, could I get work as a director? And then I at my first child at that point. And, and you're and then, not talking about a, a movie project here. You're actually this talking wasn't, about... Yeah, this wasn't, this wasn't a work-related thing, but it was very work-related as well because they're, like you're, they're a responsibility and then you've got to feed them. And uh, <laughs> uh, like they go through clothes, like mental. And, so, and I, I couldn't do that just directing. So I was having to kind of both do a thing of like... Every weekend I would shoot stuff um, I would shoot demo commercials, and I knew that like I wasn't qualified to do anything else, so I didn't have the luxury of having, you know, my um, quantity surveying to fall back on or whatever. I had to kind of make this work, and I directed like travel shows. You know, I remember going on holiday with a family with a DV camera and filming their holiday, doing this long shot of them on the beach, and they forgot they were on radio mics, and the husband was going, "Why are you flirting with that fucking guy from the telly?" And I'm like. <laughs> <laughs> And, you know, I just... There was a lot of funny stuff, but there was also, like, I was waiting tables, and then I would quit the job on the Thursday because we'd got another ad to do on the Friday, and it was all like that. And then I was continuing to make short films. My third short film was good, and it won some awards, and I got offered my first television drama because another director... It was like the shit Irish version of Skins was, was making this TV show happen. Um, and... She was like, you should be employing young up-and-coming directors if it's meant to be young, because the guys who were, like, right the reason it was shit was because it was, like, written by the producers. Definitely not here. Uh, who were, like, all, like, uh, in their 50s, and it was just, you know, it wasn't really kind of, like, truthful about young life. But it was my first start directing, and she gave me that break. And uh, then I was like, this is like doing a film, but it's like for television, this is cool, doing drama. And I got an agent off the back of that. And then I got my first UK job, I directed Dream Team, Footballer's Wives Extra Time, like not Footballer's Wives, but like the spin-off of Footballer's Wives. But the thing was, because I'd made this good short, we, my agent could send a good short out to people, and like everybody, you know, like Otto Bathurst, who started off Peaky Blinders, is doing this new big Robin Hood film, S.J. Clarkson, who did the Jessica Jones for Marvel, and, Uh, did Dexter, you know, they all did the same as me, they were all like doing like Hollyoaks or Doctors and you kind of have to do that to get into television drama, you do it short, that they go oh yeah, that's vision and then they're like, but we're not going to hire you to do a prime time job until you've shown you can shoot seven pages in a day and not just like, you know be doing one shot of, like, a canal for, like, four hours or something. Waiting for the golden hour. Yeah. <laughs> yeah just, you when know, the
0: sun sets, I'm sure
1: I'll get you, the perfect shot of this yeah, doctor's reception. There yeah. comes a point in your career then when maybe you're able to do that or whatever, you know, because it's appropriate, but the first thing you have to do is shoot a serial. So I did that, and then I got Hustle. That was, like, my first prime-time job. And it was like, oh, wow, we've got, like, uh, you know, proper cameras and lights and, like, Robert Vaughn, the last one of the Magnificent Seven that was left alive at the time. had his 78th birthday on set while I was filming with him, which was like pretty amazing kind of thing. And then I got Murphy's Law off the back of that. I did two series of that, three parters, and the second one of them got nominated for a BAFTA. So at that point, I was able to do good stuff because people would start sending me good things. So that was like the overnight success takes 10 years story (laughs) because that's about how long that bit took to get to there. Okay. So Bachter actually was a very helpful, just, it, it, you know, it's made you up to a level. I mean, of... obviously, all awards are a load of shit and they're just somebody's opinion. But <laughs> that's also all that anybody has in this business. It's like when you're making a film, you have like a list of actors for the movies, and they're the only thing really. They've got the script and the director, and nobody really cares about those things. And then you've got like a, a movie star in the part, and then you can make the film. And so all the distributors have these lists that are secret lists that they don't tell you about that have the names of all the movie actors in the world on, and they have letters next to them, A, B, C, D, not interested, you know? And, uh, you know, in any one week, a movie actor's place changes position on that. Awards are the same thing. It's just somebody's opinion, and you can use it for leverage. You know, maybe it's, like, useful for a while. So I've had, like, a few BAFTA nominations... And they've definitely been useful at kind of like keeping you buoyant in the kind of career nonsense, chaos, entropy that is the screen, <laughs> the screen industries.
0: You do You have some clips from your TV shows that uh, we'd like to show and then discuss to, to maybe go behind the scenes. But, but just before we get to that, I mean, you worked with Jimmy Nisbet on mm-hmm. Murphy's Law and then he he was in your uh, for, your first feature Outcast. Was, was, yeah. that
1: a, was that a relationship that you'd established with him... I'd never had a relationship with Jimmy (laughs) Nesbitt I want to make that one of the few people in Western Europe no um so, shit, shouldn't have said that at all. But, uh, no, I mean, like, yeah, definitely. I mean, I think that uh, Bloody Sunday's a brilliant film. I think Jimmy's a really good actor. He's, he's done a lot of different types of stuff in his career. But it's also that thing of, you know, it doesn't matter whether you're making a $65 million movie or whether you're making a kind of half a million dollar movie. The actor's thing is still part of that. And so... Jimmy was great because he was willing to be attached to the film from the get-go because we got on well and we'd done this work that he was proud of and he was very useful in us getting to get some money to go and make that film, you know. And between him and the wonderful Kate Dickey who was in it as well, who we'd sent um, the script to and was into it straight away and I'd seen her in Red Road and was just like, she's amazing and everything. And so the two of them were kind of the thing that got us. Nobody wanted to make a film with me particularly. Like they were like, OK, yeah, those two people, we can sell DVDs worth X amount of money to make them. And that's just like the kind of brutal business bit of it. But it was also good because they were like perfect actors to be in it as well. And this was a script you developed and written yeah, yourself. The main thing I learned from that is that I, I hate writing. I always say that like um, writing's like one personality defect, and directing is a different personality defect. And there's this kind of idea that as kind of things that are wrong with you, they should overlap. But some of us only have one thing wrong with us. (laughs) So, um, and like I don't have the sitting in a room on my own, um, talking to myself, broken. I have the everything's on fire, and I feel more relaxed about it, broken. So I'm better at directing than I am at writing, and my my brother did most of the writing on that. Actually, it was meant to be the two of us together, and I found that mostly what I did was distract him by not wanting to be quiet and write, but rather wanting to talk and do what I'm doing at the moment and
0: talk about it. And was it important for you to 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 shoot and set that film in in Edinburgh?
1: Where you yeah, you'd that was up? the main point of it was having been a 13 year old in Craig Miller was going well. That's a horror story, so let's tell a horror story about that. And thinking that like you know. Uh, it annoys me that Edinburgh is always presented on film as being the castle, or even Train Spotting, which is like great film, brilliantly made, but it's still a kind of idealized version of that. And to tell a story about what it's really like, but not. I like I love Alan Clark, He's like one of my favorite directors, but not like a, a, a Ken Loach, or you know, not like a kind of a social realism movie, but a film that was about a, a mythic film that was set in that environment. And I think it's, it's probably quite well directed and other than the bits that I talk about that my brother wrote quite badly written you know, <laughs> as a film but I think that thing it sort of does I think you know it was good to go there and film it and it doesn't exist anymore Sight Hill they knocked down the terror the, the blocks and they rebuilt everything Green Dice we were the last thing I think the first thing that it filmed in <laughs> <well>. first Dice is the last thing <to> yeah. <laughs>
0: um, well maybe we could talk about Sherlock I'm sure people are aware of the show when you became attached to that this was season 3 uh, you yeah. directed the episode The Sign of
1: Three, which I think most people remember as being the, the one at the wedding. The wedding one. The wedding one, yeah. Mm-hmm. So it was kind of funny getting to do Sherlock, was a, an, an interesting thing because it's like in, in terms of the entropy of career. I did Doctor Who because when I was a kid I loved Doctor Who and I've got two kids now and my daughter. I have managed to get a picture that she'd drawn of Madame Kevorkian and published in the Doctor Who magazine and I was like, I'm going to beat my child. <laughs> <laughs> I get very competitive with my kids, so I was like, I can get to direct Doctor Who. So I went and directed to Doctor Who, and then they got to be on the TARDIS and press the buttons, which, you know, I, I had my granny painted a wardrobe blue when I was a kid, and that was like, it was in her backyard, back green, and that was like... My my TARDIS, my kids got to be on the TARDIS and press the fucking buttons. So Stephen Moffat wrote the one that I did, and really liked what we did. We did a big 360 shot that started in one place, went through the TARDIS, came out the TARDIS door somewhere else, and weirdly nobody had done that before, which was an odd thing because you would think as like the seven-year-old me, that was the first thing I wanted to do. So he he asked me to do Sherlock. Should we watch the bit and then talk about it afterwards? What do you want to do? Uh, yeah,
0: shall we watch the clip? We'll, we'll, Should we do that? We'll set this okay. up. All right, good. Um, cool. Well, we're at the wedding. So that scene is very much focused on, on, on Sherlock himself. What were the challenges of arranging it?
1: Well, the biggest challenge was for Benedict, that he had to learn all those words. And so there's a lot of words there, isn't it? And uh, it was an unusual thing in that the script came together. Well, it's not unusual. It's actually what happens in television all the time. The script came together very late and was being worked on up until the last minute. So my memory of filming that day was going out into the garden outside where there were just like so many 18Ks. It was not true. And Benedict was walking up and down, like, (laughs) with his pages and being like, (laughs) and uh, we actually wound up getting on really well because that was, like, the main thing was kind of helping him through that. And so in terms of, like, approaching filming scenes as a director... That short that I did that won the awards and stuff, I storyboarded the whole thing. We went out and shot the storyboard. I actually did the first assembly before the editor came in, and I would say the editor's main job was making the edits better rather than kind of structural work or uh, the bigger narrative work that often you do with an editor. I don't really work like that now. It's been interesting, and we'll kind of go on a bit of a journey through these three clips, I guess, because I have wound up going back to a place where... There are certain technical reasons why you need to pre-visualise sometimes as a director, why you need storyboards or you need like uh, animatics. Or um, I've just done a pilot that had like 450 visual effects shots in 42 minutes, and like there was a lot of pre-visualising required for that and design of objects that you have interactivity with. There's reasons why you have to do it. If you don't have to do it, I'm like now I'm kind of confident enough about how you film stuff that I will start with the actors and respond to the actors because it's not just the reason why that money thing that I mentioned earlier on exists is because when you turn on the telly or you go to the movies, you usually go to see a character, to see an actor, to see a performance, to see a human being in an experience, whether they're like strictly human or they're in Star Wars or whatever they are, but that thing And so starting from what that actor is doing, rather than going, this is my square that I want you to be in, this is my uh, little rectangle, and I'd like you to be to the left of it and look down. i mean, like, that's just, I don't think that's a good way to get the best performances out of people. And if you're working with, you know, Benedict's a movie star now, he's an A on all of those lists I was talking about earlier. And the reason is because he's incredibly charismatic and he has a thing. So we talked about the scene, we talked about what he might do, we riffed on ideas and like worked out about him like, you know, jumping over the thing. And I was like, you know, I want to be here. <laughs> and like I knew that what I wanted to do was be inside his mind while all this pressure was on him, that he knows there's a murder at his mate's wedding and everything. And so we wound up with a twenty-seven mil lens, like this close to his face, pacing up and down that room. And he got into riffing on that and like knew what we were doing. And he was like playing with the camera a bit and stuff. And it kind of developed out of that. And then we stitched together all the bits where he got the words right. And that's what that is. (laughs) And within that, you know, you know that like Paul McGuigan, who was the director who directed the first Sherlock as it was on television and developed what became like the house style, which is having text on screen and a certain kind of pace to the editing. Now... That, that section there doesn't have very many cuts in it, actually, but I think it does have a sense of that kind of pace around it or whatever, and it's got text on screen. So the sort of thing that you have to understand the house style, and people often ask about that in terms of, when you go into a show like that, do you have to always stick to the house style? And it's like, uh, we talked earlier on a little bit about control and this idea. You know, People are obsessed with control. How much control do you have as a director? And the truth is, you have as much as you earn, If you go into a show like Sherlock, that's an established show and you understand what it is, which is, it's this thing with all this zhushy stuff, but it's really about a relationship between two guys and you understand that relationship and you make it, you'll have all the control in the world. The execs never came into the cutting room. They saw cuts and gave notes in email form that were good notes that were mostly kind of general rather than kind of overly specific. We edited the show and it went on air, kind of as it was then because it was doing the right thing, it was doing the right job. I wasn't sitting there going, oh, is it Sherlock enough all the time? But I knew what the thing was that I was making and I think you have to do that, especially if you're directing an established television show, that's part of doing it. And then you have to figure out, how do I take that and take the house style and make something kind of more or something interesting out of that or riff on it or kind of play with the... The idea of it a little bit. That was me kind of segueing into Peaky Blinders, so I thought we mm. could talk about that more. Peaky Blinders. A... Yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> uh, I'm okay, sure. cool. um,
0: for Peaky Blinders, you worked on the, the the second season, but you actually directed all six episodes in the second season,
1: which I, I'd say is still now relatively unusual. It's becoming more common. The role of the television and director, uh, the director in television, has changed a little bit. Like it used to be in films. The director does everything, which is bollocks because you have to have a script, right? You know, like the writer has to be doing something. And in television, uh, it's the writer's medium. And it's like, well, I've never worked... Uh, Sherlock Mark would be about sometimes, but like, I've never really worked with the writer on set. That's not really how it works. The director directs and the writer writes. And it's the same in both mediums, if you kind of know what you're doing mm-hmm. and know what the thing is, and was certainly the case on Peaky. Well, let's watch a clip uh,
0: with another... I think it's fair to say A-list movie star, well, two A-list movie stars, if you like. Uh, Do you want to set up what's happening in this scene? Very quickly. Tom Hardy is the baddie. (laughs) Maybe. (laughs) So a a scene set at a table, uh, two characters with their own agendas.
1: How did you approach that? Just fucking put two cameras up. (laughs) Actually, what happened was, you know, like the key thing sometimes with directing, the, the, the main thing is what happens on set and what you're doing with the camera. And sometimes it's about, you know, everything that happens before that. So again, this scene was like, that whole bit about the duckboard and all of that that wasn't originally necessarily in the script. that was kind of a thing we had this weird thing of having Tom Hardy in a TV show and that didn't come about the way that like I'm sure anybody expects which is we were sitting there trying to cast this character and the character is a an, an overweight jewish cockney gangster in his 50s and so we're like you know had said no And that was like, well, who else? And then we got this call from Tom Hardy's agent, the casting director, saying Tom's just walked off a movie and he's doing Legend in three months' time and he's got this gap and, uh, you know, we heard you were doing this thing, a totally different project. And the casting director was like, well, that's fully cast, but Tom likes Steve Knight. they have done Lock Together. We're doing Peaky Blinders Series 2, and there's a great bad guy in that. And she's, we're, I'm literally, we're sitting there having Nando's in her office, and she's doing this and looking at me like, is this okay? And I'm like, yeah. And so then we phoned Steve, and we're like, we have to rewrite <laughs> the script, because we've got to send it to Tom Hardy today. So he changed all the character descriptions. We got it out to Tom. He wrote a nice letter. Tom said, up, oh, talk to the director. We got on the phone. I think up until him walking up onto the set the first day, we didn't really think he was going to do it. And then we're like, okay, he's here. But what happened the process was we, we shot all of his stuff for the whole series. It was part of the reason why it wound up being me directing the whole thing was it was definitely going to be one director doing all the stuff with Tom, and it was going to be spread over um, episodes two through six. And so we shot for like seven days. Um, and every night we would rap, we'd go back to the hotel and Tom would like talk and like gesticulate and stuff. And I would be like, cool, awesome. What about this? <laughs> like, I don't know if that's a great, I don't think we can, I don't know if we can set stuff on fire tomorrow. And, uh, and then I would phone Steve and we would talk about what he discussed and Steve would write pages and the next morning we'd have those pages on set and um, we'd rehearse for a chunk. And then we just shoot. And so that's what we did that day. Like Every process is different as a director and you kind of need to know what you're doing. And like opening the thing up to other actors in that kind of way might not be a good thing for a show. But with Tom, it was a very good thing for the show and it was brilliant to have him. And I knew that because of Tom's nature and because of Killian and stuff, that the right way to do it was to cross-shoot, which is a thing that I like to do a lot. And uh, for people who are directors, you might come across DPs who tell you that cross-shooting is not good. And if it's what you want to do, you need to break those DPs. You just need to find a way to just fucking break them. And then you need to shoot with two cameras and do the thing you want to do because that's you're the director and they're not. And so um, so we started with the two of them sitting on either side of the table and we shot mid shots and we shot close-ups and we shot uh, seven and a half hours of rushes at that scene, which was initially cut at land. It was like 17 minutes long at the first assembly. And I was like, with the editor, I was like, "See you <laughs> later," <laughs> and uh, he went mad, and he's 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 in a home now. So no, but there was a, there was a process of the the scene and the the full scene is three and a half minutes long. We saw like two minutes of it there because it would have been too long. I was but. Um, but that that's, and then you find this great scene out of it, and it's like it's not the normal way to work necessarily for a television drama, but then it's not a normal TV show, I think, and that's part of the reason why, is because of that.
0: And did you find that the actors responded to, to this approach? They were open to it and. Well,
1: enjoyed what it, it meant was because there were two cameras on them both all the time, that they both had to be like on, on, and it became like. They're both sort of formidable kind of guys. I mean, like, lovely as well, like, genuinely, like, lovely too, but also, you know, uh, (laughs) yeah, whatever. So, like, uh, so it weren't going to kind of crack first. And it's kind of funny, because that's obviously what the scene's all about as well, is, like, you know, who's going to blink? And so it, it was the right thing to do in that situation. And we just got tighter and tighter and tighter. And it got intense in the room. And it was like everybody else as well. Like, you know, the focus puller, because I haven't moved the cameras and now we're on like 100mm lens and Tom will lurch forward. The focus puller is like from the sky. <laughs> you know, it was, it was a good day. It was a good day at the office. Well, but not for the editor, but for everyone else.
0: <laughs> well, I'm slightly conscious that we're, we're rushing ahead. Maybe we can just go on to the girl with all the kids. This is one of the most... Um, um, the biggest set pieces in the movie, I think it's fair to say. No spoilers.
1: So that took a little bit more planning than the, than the two guys at the desk. Yeah, we, you, I mean, we've got crowds, you've got
0: effect shots, uh, long continuous takes. Uh, I mean, in terms of the film as a whole, how much importance did you put on this sequence and, uh, and you know, when did you plan
1: out what well, you wanted to do? I wouldn't say that I put more importance on it but I was conscious of the preparation that it would require to execute it so um, the biggest challenge in that film was the fact that quite early on in the development process because it was an unusual process because there's a book as well but they were actually both developed kind of at the same time and the place the main place that they sort of separated paths was quite early on My feeling with Mike, who wrote both, um, uh, Mike Carey is like an amazing guy, but was that the film should be sort of told from Melanie's point of view, who's the little girl, and like deciding to tell a story from a child's point of view is just like a giant bite of a nightmare sandwich as a director because like child labour laws and duty of care and like being a good human being and all that stuff becomes. Harder under those circumstances, but also the execution of things and being able to pull stuff off is difficult too. And so this sequence was a very difficult sequence to get. A kid to do, and I also didn't want to cast like a kind of actory kid. So um, Senya was this girl that we found in Nottingham through Television Workshop, which is where all the, the This Is England kids came from and stuff. And she was from like a single parent family, council estate kind of upbringing. It was like suddenly in this movie with like Glenn Close and Gemma Artisan and it was a very strange thing for her. We kind of had to mind her through, and so we actually started work with her three weeks before we started shooting. And the shoot was seven weeks long, and this was like the last three days of the shoot was, was this. And so we started rehearsals for this sequence with her during that time in terms of her... Because the, the reason that she was amazing in the film is not to do with any of that stuff, but it's to do with her ability to... I would say to young actors and to kids, acting is listening, you know? Um, so it's, it's all about being there with another human being and not just doing this rehearsed thing which is kind of like bad acting, like good acting, is genuinely being there with the other human being and you know, forgetting your lines and everything and just being there and then the lines will come to you because they'll come out at the moment naturally <laughs> if you commit to it and all that. And so that thing she was amazing at and she was able to be this human being and be really there. But the thing of rehearsing and having to do the animalistic stuff and the things that were the monster part of Melanie, the other side of this character that was made the film so interesting... You know, the innocent with the monster was harder for her and the physical commitment to that. So we had her in that and then there's layers of visual effects there. A lot of the people that you see are cardied visual effects people. All the gunshots are fake, uh, they're all visual effects gunshots. Uh, there were no squibs there or anything and we'd only ever have enough extras to do this bit. And then this bit and then this bit so the foreground people are re- well not the very foreground people they're fake as well but the kind of mid-ground people were really there and everybody else had to be built into it and so there was a fair bit of planning in that and yet i still didn't want to really storyboard it and kind of plan where everyone was going to be i wanted her to run her route and us to be with her and like find them based on that out of the location and be responsive to the world and alive to what was going on and, and i mean were you able to do multiple takes? Oh, yes. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, like, uh, the three bits of advice I always give, like, uh, whatever the first one I said that I can't remember now. What was it? Can you remember? No. I think it was, like, feed people or something, wasn't it? I don't know. Feed, feed. feed, feed the crew. Just, just don't uh, feed them other people. Don't do it like that. Um, shoot lots of... Shoot lots. Shoot a lot. And shoot stuff. Do you know, like, if you want to direct, go and direct, you know, like, um, go and make things because you can, you know, but, um, but when you're filming, shoot a lot of stuff as well, you know, so, you know, I, I never understand why anybody only does, t- I've heard that about other directors and everybody's got their own way of working, but some people are like, oh yeah, he only ever does two takes, I'm like, what? Like, uh, seven and a half hours of rushes on the Peaky thing, I don't know how much rushes we shot for that, but we would, there's mm-hmm. hidden edits in it, obviously, you know, like when it pans, there's mm-hmm. like edits and stuff. And that's kind of how you put something like that together. And clearly the soundtrack was an important part of it. Like we kind of did something with temp music that was one way. And then, you know, I worked very closely with Christo. Cristobal Tapia de Vere did the soundtrack, did the music, uh, who did um, Utopia. And uh, he's a great composer. And it was like really... Amazing to work with him, but we, uh, no, (laughs) but he, but yeah, it was, um, uh, yeah, it was a a kind of process, and that kind of then informed the mix. And we worked with a great mixer as well. It's like, you know, uh, you continue to make it organically and to respond to how the kind of material is presenting itself. There's a notion that, like, you know, you've got this perfect film, crystalline structure in your head. And then you execute that exactly, and that's what being a good director is. And maybe that's a kind of good director, but it's definitely not the kind I have.
0: And did you always have that kind of God's eye shot idea in mind for when they're fleeing in their military vehicle? Because that's a very striking shot.
1: Um, I had it when we went to look at the location. I responded to the place, I think, and felt like that was, um, yeah, I knew that I wanted a, a big image at the end, and so I kind of have what I call like sort of post it images and then I always hope that they'll get kind of replaced as you go through the process where you go like uh I don't know like uh, maybe in three colors <laughs> blue had yeah, the coffee cup maybe he had the sugar cube or maybe he saw it on the day I don't know but you know that scene needs an image in it and you know there's always like you know there's like post-it images where you go I need a, a moment or a thing here yeah shall we open oh, it yeah, up before nice. we've got
0: a couple of roaming mics we'll start with this gentleman if Eon Productions
1: were to offer you $20 million to direct the next James Bond movie, would you say yes or no? Uh, it's quite a difficult question. $20 million as a paycheck? Yeah, uh, yeah I'd do that, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> not as the That's budget. I don't, I, do not, I don't like James Bond very much, so, so, and I've said it publicly now, so that will uh, hopefully <laughs> ensure that that doesn't ever happen. He's and gonna up to the offer now, it's gonna be Yeah, five. Sixty. <laughs> yeah. And when you work with somebody like uh back for the first
0: time or like a big A list partner, how do you balance getting your vision of performance with what ben told probably what you do just probably get out of the way and just let them do their performance? Like is there a big nerve? I think they
1: only want to do that if you're bad at your job. I think good actors like direction. I mean, look. Glenn Close is in Girl With All The Gifts. She's been nominated for the for the Oscar six times. And at one point, um, on the third day of working with her, I was trying to sort of express something about one of the lines and kind of what this line's meant to be. And she went in and she went, just say the line. And she got me to do a line read into her ear, which is the thing you're meant to never do with actors. There's no right or wrong about that stuff. But if you've got a good relationship with people... The, you know, the way in which it is a director's medium is that you're the person telling the story. There were definitely times with Benedict where Benedict wanted to do a different thing than what I originally thought and sometimes I would be like, that's better. You know, like, so, like, quite often people will have better ideas than you will you know, in life and I know like Jim Sheridan, I was lucky enough to kind of share a production office Awesome. Every
0: uh, every time you mention Jim's name,
1: a a roll of thunder. Jim. Uh, No, so he talks way more than I do. He's like very talky. And uh, he had some brilliant things. There's no such thing as a good actor. There's only the right actor for a part, you know. But one of the stories about Jim is like, you know, him, him stopping shooting a scene an hour before lunch because it wasn't working for him. And then coming back after lunch, and he said, ah, oh, the dinner lady had no an idea. And he meant he'd been talking to, like, the woman, Mary, about his problem with the scene, and she had an idea. And so, like, the dinner lady had an idea. And it's like, at the same time, it's not like a free-for-all. You know, I do be like, um, but you can say that with a look. You don't need to, you know, you don't need to tell people to shut up, usually, you know. Just to clarify, in Peaky Blinders, we they're not each other's frames and they didn't overlap. Was it just to keep them both on camera? Um, they did overlap sometimes. Whether or not they're the same takes consistently there or not, I don't know. But all of their reactions are to real acting rather than, like, you know, fake acting. Do you know, like, I very rarely lose my temper on set. But I remember when I was doing um, Footballer's Wife's Extra Time, there was an there was an actor off camera texting while doing the other half of the scene, and I knocked his phone out of his hand. I was so angry; it was just so disrespectful a thing to do to someone else. And I wouldn't get angry normally, but it might be that it might be that you use the overlaps. Well, one thing is, you how many times do you have to do the scene, and how many times is the scene going to wind up being immortalized? I would rather light for a little bit longer to get to the place where you can cross shoot and then just focus on performance and have less fucking about with bits of chrome and bits of black stuff and you know all of that and and really get into the scene. And so it doesn't really matter if you use take two and take three, like for the whole scene, because take two and take three will both be five to ten percent better for having the other person really doing it opposite them. Except. Because with everything, there's an exception. So, in Girl with All the Gifts, sometimes I would get the actress to do different performances for Melanie because her way of seeing the world is different to the way that the world is. So, um, I remember at one point there's a scene when she's like watching Paddy Constein's character put together his gun and she's like all really interested in it. And he's been like, you know, she's asking lots of questions and he's like answering. And when we did her shots, I got him to be really nice and explain to her because that was the way, because acting is listening. So, is that an answer? All right, good. good. And he's a bit more grumpy in the final. Oh yeah, he's like, yeah, he's, yeah. Do <laughs> he you yeah. have another question? Hi, thank you for the talk. Um, I was
0: just wondering that, um, when you talk about developing director's career, you usually talk about director's voice, you know, like, oh, what's your vision of the project and all of that. And with someone like you, with such a diverse portfolio of work through television, I mean, from reality to television, and now to higher drama, what do you look for in the script? and how
1: do you feel that you find a voice through all of that? Oh. I don't know how I buy into that notion in the first place about like the director's voice. It sort of um, suggests a couple of things that I don't really like. One of which is the idea that you have like a style or a way of doing things, because to me that's straight away you putting yourself between you and the story, you know. Um, and... Secondly, I think there's a difference probably between projects that you conceive of yourself and work that you come on as a director. I happen to think Stephen Frears is like one of the best directors the UK has produced. His work is incredibly diverse and he notoriously doesn't really do a lot of development. You know, but he tends to come on to projects where the scripts quite well, but he's a fucking brilliant director. You know, like, he's made some amazing films, a lot of, like, the best British movies. And so I, I don't think, you know, having a, a style that you impose is necessarily right. It's right for some people. Big Spielberg fan. Worked for him for the first 20 years, a lot. Um, and in terms of developing your voice, if it's something, if you feel like you've got something to say, maybe you should start writing. And the second part of your question, which is, I would say, a different question, what attracts you to material, the human story, usually? You know, so... Uh, gifts we developed um, Peaky Blinders, I love the characters and I totally got the understanding of it because I, I got that what it was was Steve Knight grew up watching Sergio Leone and hearing these stories about his family and he built his own Leone-esque myth about where he came from in Birmingham and I just thought that's such a beautiful thing and Otto had done this incredible job directing the first series where he'd, um, he'd done this thing of using contemporary music and stuff but he'd kind of decided to do it in post, and I was like, you could do that even better. It's such a good idea. Um, and so we did. We were lucky because um, I got talking to Killian early on in the process, and he was friends with Flood, and I talked about wanting to use some of PJ Harvey's tracks and Flood knew PJ, and we were able to find this way that we got access to the multi-track recordings of a lot of the Nick Cave and PJ Harvey stuff so that Flood and Paul Hartnell, who did the, music, the original music that year, were able to use those multi-track sessions to create the score... From, so I felt like, you know, Otto had birthed this thing and then we were getting to educate it or something, you know, like it it was a kind of development thing. And I didn't feel like less creatively rewarded for not being the person who'd had the thing to say at the beginning of it all. For me, you know, personally, I felt like I got to, to develop this thing that was already existing and have my kind of, I don't really believe in any of that legacy crap. It's all evolution. You just have a bit of the evolution that you get to be involved in and film is the most collaborative medium. The whole auteur thing is such bollocks. You know, like, it takes 100 people to make a movie. And um, you
0: discussing developing projects. I mean, you recently set up your own production company.
1: Yeah, so Kami Gatan, who is the producer on Gifts and I, mm-hmm. decided to set up this company, Scary Monsters. Basically, Gifts is kind of weird in that it was critically acclaimed and it also made a bit of money, which doesn't really happen in the UK with films a lot. And the BFI do a good thing, which is they let you lockbox some money. So we've got this we've got this kind of development, Kitty. There's only so many projects that that I can direct mm-hmm. <laughs> in the world. We'd had this kind of good experience where on Twitter I'd put a tweet out saying, if you're not white or a bloke, and you know, if you're if you're not one of those things and you want to direct, then give me a thing, because I can't not be a white guy, and I, I'm very happy to be who I am, but it's a problem in our industry that like uh, it's a sausage fest, a pale sausage fest. And uh, it would be nice to do something about it. So I started mentoring, and Cami kind of helped with that. And we brought a couple of people out on the shoot and did a bit of shadowing, and, and then we've gone on to do other stuff. And so it was kind of, that was so enjoyable and such a buzz as a thing to do that it felt like something that we could maybe continue a bit, like Gifts was an exercise in that. There's a political element to it, I guess, as well, in terms of the gender politics of storytelling that we decided to, the Bechdel test, everyone know what the Bechtel test is? I have nods down there. Uh, but yeah, so it's such a pathetic barometer, it felt like it would be cool to do something that was trying to defy that a little bit so we developed a story that was like you know there's five central characters and four of them are women and the main characters non-white whatever so um yeah so just continue to try and do that in our work uh, and also tell cool genre films and not make it like i couldn't make fucking i daniel blake i just wouldn't be able to do that but like i think you can still do something political making a zombie film or you know Sorry, politics, sorry. <laughs> um, I think this might have to be our last question, but the gentleman over here. Um, it sounds like you're quite serious about your music. Is that something that you consider a lot? I mean, it sounds like you did with P.G. Harvey and all those mm. tracks and stuff. Is it something you consider a lot? Is it something <laughs> that you maybe almost move into a central part of a film or a series that you're working on? Oh, I'd, love to to do, driven by I'd, I'd love to do love to do a musical. I would love to do music. I mean like music is the most important related discipline um, in filmmaking. It's like before we had dialogue, we had some ding 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 ding, ding in the in the you know dark, uh, with some with an organ or whatever and I think that um, it's I I hate that whole thing of you know oh music shouldn't tell you what to feel. It's like well that's its job. That's what music does. It makes you feel stuff. You know, if you listen to um, the overture to Tristan and Isolde, it's like so complicated emotionally in a way that like books and films even can't do because it's pure abstract emotion that hits you on a much deeper level. So to be able to bring that and fold that into filmmaking seems to me like the best most enjoyable thing about it also i'm a shite musician and it's a great way to get to use music it's maybe one step better than being a dj you know like it's (laughs) um and i get to collaborate i mean i got to be in the room with pj harvey doing a cover version of red right hand because i'd said that would be a good idea and then i got to go do you think we should do one more take where you're a bit more. I got to like direct it a little bit. It was fucking awesome, you know. Like, and um, and so that's amazing. And uh, and and like any other collaborator, they can you know composers can surprise you. And yeah, and it's hugely the rhythm of editing is the number of times that you cut a sequence with music and then you remove, remove the music and it's like way better than it was the cut before you tried to do it with music because the images just respond to the music. That mysterious thing when you have no music on a one-shot thing and you put music on it and suddenly everything's in sync to the music, even if it's, you know, it's a, a mysterious kind of... I, I don't believe in a kind of religious god but I have quite a spiritual kind of like faith in music. Wanker. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I,
0: I can't wait to, to see a, a musical project from you. I'd love to see that, yeah. Uh, but I'm afraid that's all we'll have time for, so... We'll bring the session to close, but yeah.